Welcome to Language and Culture with Dr. J. I am Dr. J. This is a podcast about language, culture, and identity, and how these affect all areas of work and life. My guests range from politicians to artists, scientists, educators, students. I conduct interviews in English, French, German, Hungarian, and Spanish. You are now listening to an episode in English. The podcast also includes two new segments. On the one hand, Dr. J's Soapbox, in which I briefly share with you thoughts that are just itching to be out there. And on the other hand, a segment called Kids Ask, in which children from around the world have the chance to ask my guests a question. The podcast is brought to you by Couturium.com in affiliation with Quadil Books and Events. For more information about the podcast and about us, as well as for teaching resources and study guides to the episodes, please visit our website, www.culturium.com. That's www.culturium.com. You can also find me on our social media channels with the handle or hashtag DRJPodcast. So don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and updates. This episode is entitled The Travel Bug and was recorded in October 2020. This episode is entitled The Travel Bug. My guest today is Jane Hermstead. Jane has a BA in history and an MA in international relations. She has lived all over the world. Uh, she spent five years in Dubai, one year in India, one year in Japan, six months in France, one year in Albania, one year in Hungary, one year in Canada. And now she is living in Argentina with her son and her husband. And the plans to travel have not stopped. Uh, so she has amazing, uh, exciting plans to continue traveling as well. Welcome, Jane. Thank you, Henriette. <laughs> so Jane, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and telling us a little bit about yourself in general, where you're from originally and... Yeah, so I am from Kansas. I grew up there. I went to the University of Kansas. My mom is Hungarian though, and because of that, we always used to travel every year to Hungary when I was a kid to visit our family. And it was the highlight of my, my summer every year, and we would go from there to Austria or to Greece or to Germany. And so the travel bug definitely started with that, and it's been just a lifelong, thing um, ever since then. So I've always sought out opportunities to travel abroad when I was a student. And then when I started working, I looked for opportunities to work abroad too. I was never relocated or transferred or anything like that. I looked for opportunities in these different countries and um, was able to make that happen. And it's been incredibly enriching and amazing. And now um, I've worked 10 years in the U.S. and when I married my husband, we talked a lot about our retirement and the plan for our retirement was always to spend it internationally. But then the more we talked about it, the more we thought that it would be amazing if we could have our son, Wolf, as experience that also, rather than waiting until 
he was off to college to start doing that for ourselves. So we just started looking at how could we pull the timeline back and figure things out to, to bump up our plan. And we were able to do that. So now he's almost six and we're living in Patagonia in Argentina. And uh, he's been learning Spanish and is going to be going to a local school here, hopefully if things open, but that's been the general course so far. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what you, what you did to get there, I already know the story, sort of how you sold your house and everything. And, but let's, let's uh, put that off just a tiny bit, if you, if you wouldn't mind. And let's talk about where you already lived as a, as a child. Your mother is Hungarian. Did yes. you ever live in Hungary? We did. So I went to, I think it was, I always forget if it was kindergarten or first, but I think it was first grade at the British Embassy School in Budapest. And I just have memories of walking around the city and the castle doing times tables with my dad and having friends from all over the world at the school. And I just loved it. It was amazing. That's, that's great. But you don't speak Hungarian. No, not John Kichi. Not John Kichi. I know I've, I've spoken to your mom in Hungarian, so I know she yeah. speaks Hungarian. Yeah, yeah. But she always spoke to you guys in, in English. She did, and that was a cultural choice for her. So she came to the U.S. in the 70s, in the early 1970s, and it's time when Hungary was totalitarian and it wasn't a positive or happy place for her. So when she moved here, she gave my brother and I the most English of Anglo names possible. So I'm Jane, my brother is David. There's not a hint of a cultural nod to Hungary anywhere. She didn't teach us Hungarian because, you know, she didn't see value in us maintaining that connection. She wanted us to be American and to connect with America. And for her, that was the focus. It's actually something she regrets, though, that she's talked about a lot is that, you know, if she could do it over again, she wouldn't have made that same choice. She would have taught us Hungarian and kind of recognizes that that we've missed out on some things because of that, like being able to speak with our grandmother or a lot of our relatives that we just couldn't do because we, they didn't speak English and we didn't speak Hungarian. And I know that's one of the, that's one of your regrets as well. I think you've, you've expressed it that. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's not an easy language. It's not an easy language to acquire as an adult. It's a difficult language, uh, you know, and I think that most of all the, 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 missing those family connections that we could have had that were just they're just shallow when you can't speak directly it just becomes you know you're talking about the food on the table as opposed to like really connecting the way that you would if you could communicate directly right and and and, and appreciate the humor and the songs and the 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 personality yeah. and hmm. yeah absolutely hmm. absolutely so how did you end up in, in Hungary? Did your father have a job? Your father worked at the university, right? He did. So my parents met when my, my father was a, a math, math professor, and he was doing doctoral research at the University of Budapest in Hungary. And then he went back when I was in first grade to do more research. He was partnering with some different mathematicians in Budapest, and so he did another exchange for a year. So we got to go and live there. And I did actually learn Hungarian when we lived there. Like my mom called it kitchen Hungarian, like not totally 
you know, grammatically correct or anything. But then that, that went away when we went back because we didn't, we didn't reinforce it. Sure. So that was gone. Sure. So, so tell us a little bit about uh, the other places you've lived. You, you spent a year in Canada as a child still, right? Yeah, I don't remember that at all. That was before Hungary. So I was two or three years old. But we, yeah, we lived in Calgary. The same thing. It was a mathematical exchange with the University of Calgary. Okay. Um, so tell us a little bit about the other places you've lived. Um, France, Albania, Japan. Yeah. So I, mm -hmm, I lived in France as a student. That was an ex just um, a doctoral program I was in for a while. I started a doctoral program in history, in European history, and I was having trouble coming up with the topic. <laughs> I just kept flitting around, flitting around from topic to topic. And so my advisor helped me find this exchange in Avignon. And the purpose was to come back with a topic, which I didn't, but I had a, I had a, a really good six months in Japan and I'm um, sorry, in France. But then at the end of that, just decided it wasn't the right course for me probably because I didn't have the passion around any particular topic, <laughs> but that was France. And then Albania was with the Peace Corps where I was doing teacher training and also teaching English in high school there. Um, that was really interesting. I mean, that's a difficult and different country, but very beautiful and super interesting to spend time there. And then I taught English in Japan for a year in Tokyo, where I just bought a ticket. That was actually the first place I lived abroad as an adult that I just organized myself. It was in the 90s when it was still, or late 90s, when it was still possible to just kind of show up because there was such a boom for English teaching. So I just showed up and there were lots of ads in the paper and it was very easy because the requirements looked kind of like this. Uh, female, under 25, college degree, native speaker. That was the, <laughs> that was it. And uh, I mean, it was, it took a day to get a job. It was very easy yeah. then. Yeah. So I stayed, yeah, I stayed in for a year. So, so what, what would you say, what were the most interesting experiences or what did you take out of these days in France? Let's just stay with those. Um, Hungary, you were too little, you were a child. Um, but actually, if you'd like to refer back to that as well, why not? Um, what have you taken? Just let's stay with these. Uh, we'll talk about India and Dubai in a second. Um, what did you take away from it? What were the... I don't know. Um, I mean, the podcast is language and culture with Dr. J. So what were the linguistic and cultural uh, lessons or uh, gifts uh, that, that you that you took away? So uh, culturally, like in Japan, for example, one thing that was really interesting for me was being there as a woman. So that was the first place, like I said, as an adult that I'd lived abroad. After France, I was a student, so it felt different. But in Japan, seeing these advertisements, like specifically, openly, blatantly calling out like age or and beauty, they were looking for attractive. Attractive would be in the job advertisements, and then showing up at these companies and seeing like the, the female teachers pouring tea for their male peers and kind of being expected to do all the administrative stuff for their peers was really interesting and kind of gave me a, probably a different sense of, you, I think you see your own culture when you step outside of it, right? And so it was 
eye-opening to see what some of these people didn't have, right? Or when I lived in Albania, uh, I did a homestay to learn the language for six months. And there was a, a, the daughter in this family of, they were farmers, and the daughter was the exact same age as me. And she had had a boyfriend in the town nearby. And this was considered totally shameful and scandalous, this one boyfriend that she'd had. And because of that, her parents, you know, wouldn't let her go unsupervised anywhere. And she just stayed in the house and was kind of like Cinderella in the house, cleaning everything and cooking and, and doing all that. And I remember that I used to, I used to have these conversations with her that just, you know, looking back on, feel kind of misguided um, about, kind of things she could do and how she could break out of that because she had a degree in economics and she spoke English very well. And for her, it was more of like, that was, that was the path. Those were the choices she had made. And this was a cultural thing she was just going to have to work through. And I, you know, was think, trying to come in with this American rah-rah of like, you can forge your own destiny and do something different. And it didn't seem to help. It kind of like, I think was just upsetting for her actually. Mm. And we had this, this moment where she was preparing dinner. Like she always made the dinner for the family and we were having a conversation kind of like this. And she just picked up this watermelon and held it up in the air. And she was like, do you like watermelon, Jane? Like, yeah, I like watermelon. She's like, I like watermelon too. And she starts chopping it up. And I was like, okay, this is, this is obvious. Like it was just a little bit of a, I don't know, a little bit of a freak out. And I didn't really revisit it after that, but it was just an interesting place to see again, like what life is like for women in different parts of the world and what paths exist if you have education or don't and which maybe don't. So it was pretty eye-opening. But just to, to go back to, because I, 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 I'm always interested in these types of stories. I, I think they're fascinating. Um, just to get the story straight as well. So she was educated. She yeah, was she had a degree in economics. Mm -hmm. She spoke English very well. By, and by boyfriend, you mean lover. Yeah, she okay. had a lover. And then the town found out. But so, And so, it was but, just... A, would you be allowed to have a boyfriend sort of, you know, without any intimate relations or? I think you would be allowed to have like a, like a, somebody you liked that liked you, that you kind of, you were associated with, but the fact that it, it was a lover was not okay at all. It was not and, okay at all. And it was discovered. And then because of that, she had to live at home. And how long did she have to live at home? I mean, was there, was there an end to her punishment? So or she had to live at home until she got married, but nobody wanted to marry her because everyone knew she'd had this lover. So she was considered kind of tainted in this right. community. So like a really challenging situation. And so we were in a small, we were in a village and the lover was in a town nearby. The town was probably 30,000 people. The village was probably like in the hundreds. And if she were in the capital, which was where I would always come in, like, why didn't you go to the capital, go to Tirana, where like, it was much, it would have been fine. 
but if she did that, her, she would have broken completely with her family. So the only way to do that would have been to just completely like cut all ties with her family because they would not allow that and she wasn't going to do that. So she, unless I, and I don't know, we've lost touch because this was sort of, I don't think she had email and there wasn't Facebook or anything like that. So I don't know if she is still with her family or if she got married or, or what, but like seeing women in the issue of marriage in different cultures is also interesting. Like when I lived in Japan, I was 25 and they had an expression that women over 25 were Christmas cake because nobody wants Christmas cake after Christmas. And I was 25 and I was like, I'm Christmas cake. Like nobody, like what? Um, but that was, you know, that was the culture. Wow. It was, yeah. And, and I think that's, that's absolutely, the, the episode is entitled Travel Bug. And I think if we have the travel bug, uh, we're really interested in other cultures and how, how people truly live. And that's one of the things that I think you and I really share. I, I don't like to travel uh, or call it travel if I go to a resort somewhere and uh, yeah. live in, in my own comfort zone. Um, I think to have the travel bug or to truly uh, experience other cultures, you have to live in families and experience how other people live. And this, the, for example, the Albanian experience is, I think, fascinating. Also, what, what, you, what you said with um, your American ideas, trying to, uh, quote unquote, impose your ideas. Yeah, yeah to, no, to no help. It wasn't helpful. Right. I, I, there are uh, examples of feminists. Well, there's, there's a lot of examples of different feminine or feminist organizations trying to help, for example, Roma and Sinti communities in uh, Spain and Romania, etc., to much the same effect where um, it actually causes problems because it puts ideas into people's minds, it makes people unsatisfied with their situation, it makes it more difficult for, for the women to deal with the men, it makes the men paranoid, it's just sort of... Yeah, you're working against the culture, like, because you, you know, even being, being there a year isn't very long, right? So it's not like I had a deep understanding of Albanian culture to sort of be coming in with these ideas. I mean, it was, it was interesting. It was challenging. And sometimes I thought like in Albania in particular, would it have been better off for this girl if like, even though we were friends, if like I'd never come to the house because she would see me the exact same age as her coming and going. I had like all the volunteers I was friends with would come by the house. We'd go hiking when we weren't in language class. So like they were in and out all the time. And like to see that parallel life i don't know i don't know if that if that felt great right but isn't but isn't that i mean um anytime we have this type of exchange of cultures it is always a chiseling it is always a give and take and and it's not necessary i mean um I, I i think of that as well that that it's not necessarily changing a culture it's I think influence or cultural influence is always very slow. It always has, to, it, it should be slow. Um, I think if it's imposed, it's not good. It should be a slow development. Do you know what I mean? I think that sort of, I think it, there's, there also has to be, I mean, there, there are so many examples of 
um, even agriculturally or, or in, in, in business or in, any, in anything, uh, in, in, in every single aspect of life, Western uh, ideals being uh, brought to a certain place and that destroying the entire infrastructure, that destroying the entire way of life. And so I think it's, um, it's, it's, it, it can be quite arrogant of us to sort of try to impose one belief or another. I think that communities and, and societies exist. And for me, always, the emphasis is on the exchange on the yeah. communication on, on actually passing on different ways of thinking. And it doesn't mean that one or the other is, other is right, uh, or it shouldn't be thought of as, as, as measuring it in that sense, but, but more of a sense of, okay, well, we will consider each other's views and then, and then adapt or not adapt or, you know, sort of, um, I think that's the, yeah. That's the, yeah. I had a really interesting discussion about this here in Argentina a few months ago. We, I went out with a friend of mine. She has a horse that she keeps out at a ranch. And we went out and she took me out there to go horseback riding. And the person who ran, the manager who kind of took care of the horses was Mapuche. So Mapuche is uh, the, the largest indigenous group in Chile, in Southern Chile and in lots of Argentina. So in Patagonia, it's a dominant group. And there are lots of social issues and land rights issues with Mapuches. And we got into a conversation about it. And one other, we had another friend with us who asked about doing volunteering. So this is an Argentinian friend. She said she'd always wanted to like volunteer in one of the Mapuche villages and maybe teach Spanish or teach English or something. And the guy, the Mapuche said like, mm, you have to be really careful with that because when you're coming in as a volunteer, you're coming in basically saying like, I'm going to give you this. And his recommendation was just to come in and just kind of be, just interact and just be rather than trying to like, give something or do something or like because the inherent idea behind that would be that like you're somehow in this kind of higher more dominant more successful more prosperous whatever position and that that wasn't often well received but that that he said that that could come later that like there is room for that but that you had to spend a lot of time up front just developing relationships that were totally equal to equal without any sort of I am giving you this in the relationship mm. it was really inter interesting right right and I think I mean sort of without being we without trying to sound too idealistic but um, again the emphasis is on not necessarily converting people to a certain way of thinking but true sharing true communication and true sort of like looking at the two value systems and truly evaluating it and truly considering each other's thoughts. I mean, uh, without the, the podcast is not at all political, but I always say sort of we can look in our own backyard and, and, and hope for, for that. Um, we don't have to necessarily go international with it either, but so much for that. But, <laughs> but for, for the example of Albania as well, um, 
What did you take away from that way of thinking? Are there any, is there any way sort of, if, if we apply my little theory here, were you at all affected? Did it, did it uh, influence your way of thinking at all? Did you, or, or did you have this corrective urge? You know what I mean? I did have this corrective urge about like, you know, that I thought coming in with this sort of being very independent that, you know, thinking that she was clearly so unhappy that looking for solutions and trying to problem solve for her. Um, but in terms of like what I took from it, I thought about it a lot afterwards. Like I still, I still think about her kind of, she comes to my mind intermittently and I think about her and I think about like the time there and like the value that she placed on her family at the end above herself, right? So like, if she were just looking at her own immediate happiness, I feel like a no brainer that you go to Tirana and you, you make your way in the world, right? You find your happiness. She could find a job, she could find a partner, she can have fam a family. And that, you know, that she was willing to, in my mind, sacrifice all of that for her family, for her parents, like the fealty, the like, the dedication. And I thought like, would I do that? Mm, you know, I'd be much more likely, I think, to not do that, to prioritize that differently, which made me think about that, right? Well, why is that different? And what am I, what am I kind of not getting that she is getting because she has like that strength of community and family that's that's different mm. it's very interesting it's very interesting and then if you think about it if you go beyond it um you know now that you have a family and what your family means and what your son means to you right um yeah. and applying it in in, in that uh, way and then sort of you know yeah what it means for a family to form for two people to come together and have this urge of a family is it linked to their other family, to the to their whatever their their elders? It's it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. The concept of elder is very different. The concept of honor. So, I mean, in Albania, it was very much about like the honor of the family. And so, for you know, our family in Kansas is very small. Like, there's no sense of I've never heard my parents talk about our family honor like once. I don't think it's ever like literally maybe never been a conversation. And for this woman this in Albania, that was the, the, the whole focus was that by having this lover in this town, she had shamed the family. And that the, the sort of penance or acknowledgement of that was lying low, helping the family in the village, working in the house, and, and the Middle East was also very much like living in Dubai was also very much a place where family honor was a really big deal. And, you know, again, like it's the mirror of your own culture living in these other places that like, why don't we talk about honor? About like, I don't, I don't think it comes up that much. So that's, that's, inter that's an interesting difference, right? So you just mentioned Dubai. So you lived for five years in Dubai. So let's let's move on to to some of your experiences in Dubai. What did you do in Dubai, and what did you take out of that experience? So in Dubai, I was doing management training for the an aluminum smelter. So it was Dubai Aluminium. It's the fifth or sixth largest aluminum smelter in the world. And what I was doing, it's so heavy manufacturing, 
male dominated, owned by the government of, of the Emirates, owned by the Emirate, Emirati government. And what I was doing was soft skills training to help the managers be better at running meetings, be better at, at managing and having conversations with peers and direct reports and things like that. So um, it was training and it was also just a fascinating place because I would do things like one of the programs that I ran there was for Emirati nationals. So Dubai is a place where Emiratis are the minority in the, the country, right? Well, it's not Dubai is an emirate, but in the United Arab Emirates, Emiratis are 18% or something. It was That's what it was when I was there. It might have changed. And the rest is all expatriate labor. So the program that I ran was to help Emiratis fast track into management positions because there was a legal requirement, at least at the time, that 75% of managerial positions in a national company had to be held by Emiratis. So then you would have the situation where a 22-year-old fresh college graduate was supposed to be uh, leading a team with you know, Pakistani and Indian and these different, especially from the subcontinent, lab workers who knew the job inside and out, had been with the company since you know 1978 or whatever, um, had held all sorts of, like knew a lot more. And it's a very difficult position to be in as a new manager. And so my job was to help train them and get them ready because their tendency would be to come in uh, very authoritarian, right? I need to show them that I'm, I'm in charge. It'd be like, well, do you? Or could we, could we come about this kind of differently? Like maybe with a little more humility and respecting what they bring. And so there were a lot of really interesting conversations. I think Dubai was also really interesting, again, from the point of view of women. Um, it challenged some views that I'd had about women being oppressed by some of the, you know, the head coverings that they would wear that seemed to me oppressive that talking to a lot of, because I had a lot of friends at this company who were Emirati, who didn't see it that way at all, that it was cultural. It was a way of identifying themselves, particularly in the Emirates with so much expatriate presence as Emirati. And that the way that they would wear their Shayla or the way that the men would wear their Kundra would be specific to the Emirates. And they could tell from the flip of it and the styling if somebody was from Bahrain or Saudi or or the Emirates or different parts and it was like cultural identification and they didn't see it that way and the women didn't see it as oppressive and also like the way that sort of rebellion would come out so the women who were more the Emirati women I knew who were more relaxed about it or more liberal would have kind of like I've got here sort of their hair coming out they'd have their lipstick on and then others who were more serious, you wouldn't see any hair, no makeup. Makeup was interesting, like the role of that. So um, another, the secretary that I was friends with would come to work every day and put on no makeup. She wore her, no hair showing, but she would put on this bright red lipstick every day. And she came from this more conservative family and her brother was the authoritarian figure in the family and he wouldn't let her wear any makeup. She couldn't go with friends. She couldn't show any hair. It was much more restrictive for her. 
So her act of rebellion would be to come to work and to put on this bright red lipstick in the office and then take it off before she would go home. So things like that, like they were so subtle and it was just fascinating. But I had lots of women that I worked with there who were Emirati, who were chemical engineers and leadership positions and just were doing amazing things and would go toe to toe with any male and it was very respectful and I always felt respected. Um, so it was a very interesting place to come in and wasn't at all what I expected. Mm. And how did, what do you think you brought to the place? What do you think, how do you think you influenced the people that you touched there? So I think I can't, I come with stories. So when I do my training, everything that I, I do in training always connects to a story. And those stories were from places that I've been and lived and also from my time in the US. And I've had a lot of people who would come up to me and have follow-up conversations about how those stories affected them. And not even just stories, just like the kind of, I think the openness that people would feel like not being from the culture to talk about some things that connect to them personally was really interesting. So I think people would see me as more of safe for some of those conversations. So for example, I used to teach content on conflict management and I had um, a Pakistani man who'd been in several of my classes. We were always friendly. He was one of these people who'd been with the company for 30 years, knew everything. And he came up to me afterwards and asked if he could talk to me and he looked kind of upset. And I was initially thinking like, oh no, did I say something? Like, um, did I do something to upset him? And he said that he, we had talked about personal versus positional authority and how as a leader, it's much more effective to rely on personal authority where people follow you because they want to, not your positional authority that I will follow you because I report to you. And he said that he had uh, this epiphany in the class where he thought about he'd been dis um, completely estranged from his eldest son in Pakistan because he realized that he had been all, all for years relying on positional authority as the patriarch of the family, expecting his son to do certain things because he told him to as the father, as the patriarch, and that he realized that he hadn't been developing the personal authority as the patriarch. And he was, we're in the hallway and he's crying and he says to me, maybe it's not too late. I was like, of course it's not too late. And, um, you know, we just had this amazing conversation and he ended up reaching out to his son who'd had a baby who had never met and it, it like, it opened the door. And so I feel like that is, that was amazing to like think about something that you come to with your kind of professional perspective and expertise and then have that actually be a gateway into something as personal as it can be for somebody else in a positive way was was incredible absolutely and and what you just the story just you that you just told that's exactly what i mean with the sharing with the cultural yeah. sharing i mean that is a, a a small example of it and that's that's the other thing i i truly believe that we affect the people we touch I, I don't believe I, I personally, maybe I'm too small, you know, so so I don't think in these huge movements, but I, I, I think that ultimately lasting change comes from individuals in affecting individuals. Um, 
from touching each other's lives. I think sort of we can preach a certain ideology or we can preach certain lessons and it's just um, possibly it's obeyed or possibly it's followed to a certain extent. But I think lasting change is when you sort of connect. I, I really truly believe in people connecting on an individual level and that's where it clicks. That's where you feel it. That's where you, you know, that's where you live it and, and, and can actually implement it. So. I totally agree. I've, I always think like if I were really wealthy, I would donate to like Rotary Club and places like that that support exchanges. Because I think if you had more students studying abroad and like really spending time in other cultures, so many issues that we have across culture would naturally resolve themselves just through more inherent understanding. But like when you don't spend any time, it's so easy to just dismiss other places and people as being different and therefore like somehow not not human almost but when you spend time with people it's impossible to do that but the interesting thing is that we're talking about national differences right now we're talking about huge cultural differences but i think that if we start concentrating only on our country and and are only familiar with our culture that culture can reduce itself so quickly to not just a national culture, which might even be broad enough, you know, but to like a very small regional culture. I mean, and going back to the Albanian example again, you said yourself that the example of the capital would have been different. So if, yeah. you're, if you're looking at the, if you're, if you're extrapolating sort of this idea to the entire country, you can't sort of make these generalizations that that's the general country culture. If you're considering the entire national identity, it encompasses many different elements. But what we tend to do is that, that we then focus on a very, very small uh, community or a very small uh, regional culture, and that can be very limiting. That's absolutely true. I mean, I think, so like, I know this is not a political show, but it's an election season right now in the U.S. And you see a, there are a lot of conversations where, you know, people are shocked and amazed at how many people support another candidate than they do and just like literally can't believe it because they live in a place where like literally everyone around them has a different point of view. And it just, I mean, I always think like, well, if you spend time in, Lawrence, Kansas, where I'm from, you might recognize some of these patterns a little bit quicker, right? But we're so, we, we kind of think it's very easy to assume that like the people around you are representative and they're not, they're representative of the people you choose to be around wherever you're from. Absolutely. So, so, but uh, let's get away from politics and uh, move on to some of the other, I think the only country that you haven't talked about yet is India, or would you like to add something to Dubai or should we move on to India? Well, we can move on to India. Okay. Okay. India, India was incredible. I mean, it's the most uh, probably culturally different place of all the places that I've lived the most like extremely different where you've got everything just laid out in front of you the rich the poor the healthy the not healthy the like it's everything life is like right there on the street in front of you 
And I was living in Chennai, which is uh, formerly Madras in Southern India. Um, and I worked at a call center there where I was doing accent work and English teaching for call center agents who were working with North American computer clients. So like Dell and Microsoft and companies like that. I was working at one of those call centers. So trying to help them prepare from a customer service perspective, but also from a, a language perspective. And I mean, the things that I was introduced to there were like fascinating. I mean, I had students who were just amazing, who would have these Romeo and Juliet love stories with someone from another cast, which is, you know, the casts are not officially acknowledged anymore, but they're very real. And the, for the student that I had was in love with a girl of what was considered a higher caste. And they had this whole love story and her family would not accept him, even though he had, he had his degree in computer engineering and he had what was considered to be a, a very good job, but because of his, so he was trying to like, he was determined to prove himself professionally. So he was just, so uh, dedicated and earnest and wanting to receive all this training because he was going to prove to her family. And, and that story I saw played out over and over again. So th that was incredibly interesting. But like when I think about India, one of the things that always comes to my mind was this encounter that I had with a maid who uh, worked at a guest house I stayed in when I first moved there. And she was Tamil. She was tiny. I mean, I'm, as you know, I'm tall. I'm like almost 5'10". She was probably 4'10", or I mean, she's definitely under five feet tall. And she didn't speak a word of English. I didn't speak any Tamil, but she was always really, really friendly and just liked me. And one day she invited me to come over to her house for lunch. Uh, through through like a translator she invited me and so I go over to her house and going over to her house was a three-hour bus ride across the city you know which I had no idea I didn't even know it was that big right how did you how did and you know she, her how did you know her so she was the maid in the guest house I was staying at so I would see her every day in the guest house and I had no idea where she lived so she said that she would come on her day off to take me to her house to have lunch at her house, right? So to do that, I didn't know this at the time, but she had to come three hours to get me by bus. And then we went three hours back and I would just, I'd only been in India for like a month at this time. And I see the city kind of like get grittier and grittier, right? Visibly poorer. And then we get to her neighborhood and I had brought, I had been told that like Coca-Cola was a nice thing to bring because it was considered a treat. So I had like this two liters of Coca-Cola, but like it didn't occur to me to bring ice, right? It just kind of assumed that there was no ice. And so we get to her street and I'm carrying this stuff and she's like literally parading me down the street and all the neighbors obviously knew that we were coming. Everyone's leaning out of the windows she's shouting at everyone she's waving she's pointing at me and then we get to her house and everyone is waiting for us and her family there are like 10 people there and uh you know we have the warm coca-cola and <laughs> like, 
it's terrible. And, but nobody else drinks any Coke but me, right? I'm like, oh, like they just pour it for me. And then we, um, a little while later, we sit down on the bed, which they converted into a table. It's a table. Yeah. And uh, she puts a plate of chicken and rice in front of me. And then like 10 people in the family are standing up around me, like looking at me. And no, you know, this is all, nobody speaks English, right? And so they're all staring at me and she starts picking up pieces of food with her hand and feeding me in my mouth like I was like a, a bird, a little baby bird. And that was what lunch was like. So she would take a piece and she would feed it to me. She would take another piece in her hands and she would feed it into my mouth. I was like being hand fed <laughs> with 10 people watching me. It was the most like, I mean, it was super uncomfortable, right? But like, it was obviously like such a big deal. It was like for, for them to have me there. And, you know, this would be a family that wouldn't normally have chicken. I learned later that was probably like a big splurge to get this chicken and they certainly weren't going to have it for everybody. This was for me. Um, and then she took me three hours back across the city after that. And I mean, it was really humbling. The whole thing was really humbling. Like that she, that that would be important to her that, that she would want to do that. The, the hand feeding of this food. I mean, it was just like an unforgettable introduction to India, you know, to have that in that first couple of weeks there. It was just unforgettable. I'm, I, I'm speechless. I, <laughs> I didn't know this story at all, Jane. You never told me about this story. Yeah. Oh, I, that's, yeah. that's, I'm speechless. I, I mean, it, it, it's, I, I, there's so many different thoughts going through my head and so many different emotions that I'm feeling just listening to that. I mean, Think it's about really it. She, she not only spent six hours with you, but she spent another three hours. So she spent 12 hours on the bus just to get you to visit her. On her day off. On her day off. On her day, on her day, off. day off, yeah. Um, her family probably spent their month's uh, wages to feed you chicken. And at yep. the same time, what a, what a, also what a, um, how you, you were, you were quite objectified, weren't you? I mean, you were sort of the, the tall uh, American girl who was fed like a little right. rabbit. I mean, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, like, and, and then we're talking about culture, language and culture. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm speechless. I, I, because that's just such an amazing story and it's such a genuine uh, example of what we're dealing with if we are really truly trying to approach cultures and if we're really truly trying to connect with other cultures then then it's not just learning five words and it's not just going and spending a week somewhere it's it's living through things like this and understanding where she came from i mean i don't know if you actually do understand you know what i mean like sort of ah oh, yeah it's it's and it's i mean i think it's being uncomfortable right like willing to be you you mentioned like that staying in a resort, like you don't really consider it traveling, like, cause you don't, there's nothing uncomfortable about it. Right. And I, I think like when you really immerse in a different culture, which by the way, I don't think has to be international even. I mean, so back to your early point about the differences regionally, like that doctoral program that I was in when I got sent to France was in Southern Georgia. And 
that was as much of a cultural shock, I think, as anything I've ever had, because coming from the Midwest to the Deep South, everything looked the same, but it wasn't, right? And that was as unnerving as anything. At least in India, I expected it to be different, and it was different. Or in Albania, I expected it to be different, and it was different. In this, coming from the Midwest to the South, it looked so much the same, but it wasn't. And that was like as sort of startling as anything, right? Yeah. And I think that's, that's the point as well. And I go back to my, to my uh, point earlier from, from earlier. We can't, sometimes I think we focus too much on the travel bug and, and focus too much on just traveling and kind of sort of trying to absorb different cultures and sort of, I have this with students sometimes where they're trying to learn five, six different languages. And I think, well, okay, but you know, you can't really even communicate in one. I mean, you know, sort of, um, so, so, so even, even that, I mean, sort of actually considering our neighbors' thoughts, considering our neighbors' ideas, considering other people in our state, in our country, in our, um, I think that's also uh, age groups, uh, you know, considering people from a different age group, uh, et cetera. So, so I think, I mean, don't even start on, you know, uh, genders and race and et cetera. I mean, sort of, I think that we can be open in every sense, not just internationally. No, I totally agree. I mean, it's diversity of thought, right? Like, so, I mean, I think like looking at the people around us and saying like, am I friends with people with different political affiliations of different religions, of different geographical um, origins of like across not just like what's obvious not just like different ethnicities for example but like on a more sort of thoughtful level like people who literally think differently or am I only surrounding myself with people who are just like me which I could do here in Argentina easily in an expat bubble right I could like only be friends with people who have kind of in, even in another country you can find people who are sort of think just like you but it's it's not very interesting right or enriching mm. i had a i had a student and again i, I don't want it to be a political uh, podcast but i had a student who who made a comment in class about how he would not stay at a party if someone if even just one person from a from a from one particular political party were were there so so just sort of saying you know sort of not being willing to be at a at a party at a party we're talking college party if someone of a different political, uh, from a different political view, uh, attended the party as well. And um, I found that so radical. I found that very limiting and very, and I, and I said sort of, I'm sorry, but I have to say that speaks against any de de democratic idea that I have. If you, if you cannot attend a college party with people from diff with different thoughts and sort of with different religions and different whatever, you're not being open. Yeah. And you're, you're just, you're kind of creating this other situation, right? Where everyone who thinks differently or has this other identification is the other and it's dehumanizing, right? Rather than trying to find like all the things that you probably do share, all the points of view that, and things you would have in common, you're just dismissing this entire group. And it, especially at a time of college, when you're like, you're young, you're like forming, you're, should be your most open. So like, what's your trajectory if that's where you're starting in college, right? Right, I know. 
Jane, let's let's move on a little bit. Thank you for sharing your your travel experiences all over the world. Let's move on a little bit to where you are right now and how that came about. I, I heard about that last year uh, in Lawrence. We met up. We met up, and um, yeah, tell tell us tell the listeners a little bit about how how that all came about and sort of how you guys made this huge life change. I mean, even though you're you are travelers, you still were based in the US and, and uh, that has changed quite a bit. It has, so we were living and based in Kansas City. I mean, we were there for 10 years. Uh, Matt was there longer than I was. And when we married, we would always talk about our retirement plans of living and traveling overseas. And then when we had our son Wolf, we just kept thinking that, isn't it a shame that he would miss out on that time overseas? Well, is there a way that we can back it up? What would that look like? So Matt is a project management Excel guy. And so he started building out all these Excel spreadsheets and, you know, putting this and that tab in it. It's not my world. I don't, I'm not an Excel person, but it's nice to have one on the team. And so, you know, he figured out how we could make it work by living in low cost of living countries where the dollar would, you know, have a favorable exchange rate. Argentina was on that list. We were looking for places where like at least one of us would have had a base in the language. I studied Spanish, even though um, I wasn't fluent, it was a base, right? And then we were looking for communities that um, were really like nature and outdoorsy. So sort of a place where we could hike and ski and, you know, do these things easily. And then we landed on Argentina, but we took like, before we came down here, we started off in this overland truck. So we sold our house and cars and bought this like army vehicle that we converted into an RV, basically this monster and drove up to Alaska in it. And we were planning on shipping that down to South America and just living out of that. But, however, the truck, truck ended up being not particularly mechanically reliable. <laughs> and so in our drive up to, and not easy to repair, it's not like people have 52 inch tires lying around <laughs> at you know the garage, right? And so we got a flat tire and we had all sorts of things and we had to have parts shipped to Canada. and. Um, we spent more time on the side of the road than we did like moving. Literally, we, we actually counted it up. So, and we had some like, we had one breakdown in particular that was like almost a month. And there was like a Canadian manhunt that we ended up being like right in the epicenter of at the same time. So finally, after that, we were like, or we could just rent a house in South America. So we, we sold that and we, we have another setup, but we're just gonna use that for the US and we're just renting a house now in Argentina. And when we came here first to the, we're in Patagonia, we were originally thinking we would stay here for a year and then travel. Let me interrupt just, during, just, one, just for one yeah. second. You sold everything in the US. You sold your beautiful house, you sold your clothes, you sold, yeah. <laughs> You just sold everything and really, truly reduced. I mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was probably the hardest. The dresses and scarves. 
Um, I had a lot and I don't. And so, you know, now I'm wearing like the same 12 like shirts over and over again. And I don't have any heels and I don't have like two scarves. I probably had 40 before. So yeah, like those things are, are different, but it's all just, um, I don't miss them a whole lot. Every once in a while I miss like my dresses or something, but the trade-off is more than worth it, right? Like to be, to think about how little, like I actually do miss most of that stuff. And to think about all the things that we've gained, like all the time together has been, you know, more than worth it. The, like how much healthier I think we all are, how much more time we spend outdoors and together. It's a huge trade-off in you, a positive way. Just, just a sort of side question. Do you have trouble? I mean, uh, even with COVID now, I sometimes, you know, we talked about before we started the interview, we talked about wearing high heels and how in, in, in now with, with, the, with the pandemic, we're, you know, we, we spend more time at home or more time outdoors or more, more time for work uh, over Zoom. So we're not wearing our high heels. And I know for me, that's something that, that has always made me feel uh, whatever, quote unquote, attractive, you know, sort of having my high heels. I, I walk differently. I, 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 I mm -hmm. like that. Um, do you have any, any sort of, I don't know, problems? It's not the right word, but sort of, do you have any difficulty? Do you have any sort of little thoughts on sort of how, how you feel pretty or how to feel, you know, how, I mean, I think sometimes we, we identify with putting on the nail polish or putting on the makeup, putting on the high heels, putting on the pretty dress. And I guess, I mean, that's not really what makes us pretty or attractive or whatever, or women. Um, but at the same time, I think we sometimes uh, equate it to that. Do you have any, uh, do you, have you reflected on that at all? Or I have thought about that. <laughs> I've thought about it. So, yeah, I mean, I'll have these moments where I'll go on, I'll go online. This is like, this is going to sound so sad and pathetic, Andrea, but <laughs> I'll tell you. And I will like, like go shopping for stuff that I like, I can't buy, like, like we'll look on websites that I like and like, you know, fill up a cart of stuff that I can't ship to myself. Cause like shipping would be like five times the amount of the package of like these like jumpsuits and all this like cute stuff that like I would like to have. And it's like this very, this sort of, I don't know, wistful sort of thing that I'll do at night when everyone's asleep sometimes because <laughs> I do, I, I do miss that. And, um, I mean, wearing the same stuff and yeah, like I, I definitely feel like not a hundred percent myself with that. Um, but because things are opening up here, like at some point I'm probably just gonna, gonna go buy some new stuff down here. Uh, yeah, cause it just doesn't feel, I don't know. It doesn't, it feels like a little bit of that is missing for sure. Right. So, so I guess that's kind of the, 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 the side of this, I mean, but, but go on with the adventure, but that, that's like sort of, you know, I, I'm trying to imagine, I mean, you're, you're a very beautiful woman. I mean, for, this is a podcast, so people can't see you, but you really are. You're a very tall, beautiful woman. And sort of, I can imagine, you know, after a while with the camper and the little house and that, you know, sort of that you would miss being able to kind of <laughs> show, show your beautiful self off. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's better now, at least now we're in a house. So I have like, I have my makeup bag and stuff. But when we were on the road, you know, and like you're taking a, a shower every couple of days when you, you can refill the water, 
Yeah, that was, that was even more so. And that was like, I think originally we planned on doing that lifestyle, that RV traveling lifestyle longer, but like actually living it, I think having a house as a base is much more practical, viable, comfortable. Yeah, for sure. But, sure. but I interrupted you. Please, please go on with your plans. You have amazing plans for how you would like to have this work for, for your son as well. And for, for your, for the next, I think eight years you've planned out, right? I mean, eight or so. We, brought, we, brought our, we used our, we used our time in quarantine to really like do a reset. And we had so much time together to just talk and think about like, what do we want? Like, I kind of think of it as life design, right? Like, what is, what, what would an amazing life look like? What would we want? And so we spent a lot of time just talking about that stuff because we have the time, right? And when we talked about that, one of the things that, that came up for us was wanting to have like a blend of stability and travel. So especially for our son, so he's going to be six in November, to not have him like constantly on the road was probably more of the ideal. So we wanted to chunk it. And then we're in a town in Patagonia, Bariloche, that's just amazing. It's as beautiful as any place I've ever been or, or more. It's mountains and lakes and just stunning and friendly. And so we this is a really good place for, I think, the grade school for to stay here for a few years. So we expanded our plan, which was originally just to be here for a year. And now our plan is for him to go to first, second, and third grade here. He will for sure learn Castellano, the Spanish that they speak here. And we should all, we're all learning it, but like really learn it and like really have friends and really become part of the community. Um, and then we're gonna spend um, another eight months or so traveling around South America. So because our parents are getting older, after that, we want to spend some time back in the U.S. for a few years. And it's, so it's for a couple of reasons. One is that both of our parents are getting older, but then also to help Wolf feel American, right? So, you know, have you heard of like third culture kids, This these kids who grow up, um, in military or children of diplomats who kind of don't really identify with their home culture and sort of create this third culture that they feel like they're not really from anywhere, well, kind of from everywhere and nowhere. I'm, I'm pointing at myself here. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, yes, exactly. And I mean, we wanted it, we want for him to feel like he's, he's got a place that he's actually from, that he knows the culture and he understands it directly, not like through us. So because of that, really, that's really true. I mean, sort of for, for me, that's one of my uh, central identity crises, you know, so that's something that's, that's really, it's really true that I, that I, uh, I haven't lived for uh, shorter periods of time in as many places as you have, but I have, you know, I really am from everywhere. Uh, it's, it's just, and I, I've traveled, but not as I haven't had as a, the extent as extended a stays, you know, as as you have. But it's just it's very difficult for me to know where I'm from and what my native tongue is. Where um, so, so absolutely yeah. I identify with that. And I think are you Romanian or Hungarian or German or American or like, right? And it's I not a, that not one of the, 
And I think one of the things that makes it so special for you and the exchanges that you have had is that even though your mother is Hungarian, um, she identified uh, with the American culture from, you know, before uh, you were born already. And um, so you are American. So your, your experiences abroad in all these different countries, even though you had, for example, I mean, well, you had one year stays and then a five year stay in Dubai, but even though you had these, these stays, um, you really were able to um, chisel your American culture or sort of bring your American culture to these places and adapt your American culture based on the influences that these places made on you. And for me, you know, I spent 12 years in Romania, but there too, I was a Hungarian in Romania, you know? Yes. Um, so yes. it starts already, you know? And then, um, and then being in Texas and then being in, well, Kansas already and, and then studying in France and then sort of, you know, my travels to South America and then sort of living now in Germany. And it, it's just kind of, yeah, it, it, yeah, it just becomes a little bit too, too chaotic and too confusing as well, so. Yeah, so we are going to try to give him that sense of kind of being from a place, being from the United States. And we're also going to bridge that gap with camps during the summer. So our plan is like every summer before then, when we're going back to have him do a camp with other kids and ideally the same camp. So he gets some kind of recurring relationships with kids there. So those are some ways we're going to try to, to bridge that for him, but we'll our plan is to live in Michigan, which cuts the distance for where Matt's family is from and where my family is from, and to do that for fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade, and then spend eighth grade doing travel again. And Matt was in the Navy, and so because of that, he, he will qualify when he turns 60, and when that will be when Wolf is in eighth grade, he will qualify for this um, space A travel. So we're, when there's space available on these military planes, on short notice, we can just go. And so the plan is to just go and kind of be a bit bohemian for a year and have backpacks and see what's available and where we want to go and just spend this year together traveling around and just being open to whatever looks interesting. And that's what we're going to do, I think, for that year. And we'll just homeschool Wolf. And then to move to Phuket, Thailand, a beautiful island, and uh, live there for high school. And so Phuket has one of the top 10 international schools in Asia, which has a director of mindfulness. So this beautiful blend of Buddhism plus academic college prep program that I love. And so this was, again, a quarantine thing, just spending all this time looking at like life design and then really digging into like well where would we go to school where would wolf go to school in michigan what are some of these camps where could we live in thailand do they have schools well what does that school look like so i mean we know that these things are going to change it's not like we're locked into this 12-year plan but i feel like in this time we definitely have a vision for it that will adapt based on whatever comes up but the vision is pretty amazing i mean we're tell me we're about it super excited about it <laughs> It is. Yeah, we're really excited about the variety, and I mean, it's the it's been really fun to be able to just be super intentional about like, well, what what could good look, what could amazing look like? How do we make that happen? Absolutely. I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about it, but uh, would you like to tell us about your Italian passport idea? 
Sure, uh, that, that's a process. So after, after Thailand, Wolf is gonna go do what he will. He'll be 18 at that point. So one of the things he could do though is he could go to school in Europe. So I've been pursuing Italian citizenship for the last year and it's probably gonna be another year before it's resolved. But Italy has one of the most open citizenship paths, uh, I think in Europe, that if you can prove um, citizenship by blood, that you have a, a direct path of citizenship from your ancestor, you can apply for citizenship. And the way they look at me, because my family comes from Sicily on my dad's side, is that I just haven't, I have Italian citizenship, but I just haven't claimed it yet, but that it passed down through my father. And so I'm claiming it. And by claiming it, if it's successful, which it looks like it should be, then Wolf will also get Italian citizenship immediately. And Matt would have to apply for it separately. He, his is a little bit harder. But with that, that opens up the EU and, uh, and beyond this kind of short-term 12-year plan where we're thinking of Portugal or Southern France for, to go to after that using that citizenship. So how yeah. does that affect your American citizenship? It doesn't. Oh, really? It doesn't. It co it co I would never, yeah, I wouldn't renounce that. It coexists with it. Okay. It just means we would, have, we would have two passports. Okay. I had an amazing conversation with the general consul to France here in Hamburg. And one of the things that uh, came out of that conversation that still stays with me is um, when he told me about how his mother actually was from Portugal and she asked herself, what language her last thoughts would be in. And I just think it's, oh, such a, wow. isn't that amazing? I, I, I still, and sort of, <laughs> what do you think? Um, let's say that, I mean, I, I, I know you, I think that you, you always manage to do what you set your mind to. I think that you will pull this the next few years, your, your plans for the next few years through as well. And you would, uh, through that, also have this absolutely amazing, charmed life. I mean, you know, sort of all over the world, you, you will have truly lived then everywhere. Um, how do you think, where do you see yourself sort of, you know, ending up or, or how do you see that? Or, you know, where does Wolf visit you for Christmas uh, when you are 80? Uh, <laughs> So our plan, our plan gets a little bit fuzzier the far, that far out, but when we talk about it, we do talk about the U.S. being like the, the, the final place. And where in the U.S., I don't know. I don't know what that, I don't think we know what that looks like. We don't have that, vi we don't have a vision for that yet. But we do think that eventually that would be in the U.S. But, I mean... I will say for myself, I'm like really open to it not being also like if we find a little hamlet in Portugal or wherever it may be, and that feels like the right place. And I don't know what Wolf's path is going to be, right? So he's going to be so multicultural with these experiences that even though we're trying to give him a sense of being from the United States, that does by no means means that he's going to get a home in Rhode Island or something like so especially with his European citizenship that he should have he may very well 
go to college and decide to live in in Europe or somewhere else. So I don't know that it'll be in the US, maybe, maybe not. So maybe it ends up being like kind of maybe we'll follow him around the world and be like, be those parents. I, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. I mean, you know that 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 brings us back possibly to the to the Albanian girl. Um, uh, the two of you, you and Matt, are both Americans. So you you are two Americans who have an American child, and you just happen to be traveling and and living the dream. But once you go to now the next generation, and uh, depending on again how Wolf's life develops, um, you possibly lose this identity. Or, or at least this identity possibly uh, fizzles, uh, becomes more diluted, uh, sort of like in my case, even though I am, I guess, I am 100% Hungarian, sort of by blood. So how do you, what do you think? Um, I think, I, again, uh, your life is, is when, when we listen to your stories and we, and we uh, listen to the future plans as well, it's absolutely amazing. And, and, and it's, a, it's a dream and it's, and it's enchanted. What do you think you miss out on? What do you, what do you think uh, you will not have experienced? Uh, the long-term stability of like community. So, uh, I mean, everything is, there are two sides to every coin, right? Like, so we don't have, and Wolf won't have like, he's not gonna be one of those kids who's gonna talk about the friends he had when he was two that are his best friend, his best man now at his wedding. Like that's not gonna be, Pro very unlikely that that's going to be the path, right? We don't have like the same yoga studio that we've been going to for 20 years where we know everybody. Like, so I think we, we trade the, the, the breadth for some of the depth maybe, right? We trade like all of these amazing experiences. And I think we're able to kind of quickly go into a community. Like, so we've, we've found friends here and like, we've, in three years, I think we can do a lot, but then when you leave, you leave, right? And you know that too from your travels that it's not like that many people that you're really regularly in contact with when you travel. So I think we give up, we give up that, right? And that's possibly, possibly most difficult in old age, possibly. We're, we're you know, it we're is. getting older, Jane, but we're not there yet. I mean. <laughs> yeah, right. But that's true, right? That like, will there be a point where we look around or I, and nobody's there, right? Because we haven't, we haven't nurtured those relationships over the long term. I think there's a lot we can do virtually, but it's not this, you know, it's not the same as like sitting down for coffee together every day or once a week or whatever the, the pattern is. So yeah, I mean, you can never have you can never have it all though right so i think it's all just about intentionality and choices and not just letting things not letting your life just happen to you but like thinking about what you want and being okay with those trade-offs and oh, if you're okay with the trade-offs yeah then you 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 set your intentions and you live according to that and i think there's nothing to regret from that it's just that's what you chose right beautifully said Beautifully said. Jane, thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation. Thank you. It was fun to think about some of these things, you know, that I don't know that I had before. So Absolutely. Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Henriette.
Thank you again, Jane. And thank you all for listening. This is Dr. J signing out.